He starts off his pitch pointing to this woman as an example. Who's on a throne, mind you. It's a velvet throne she's sitting on. Who is in a scantily clad (laughs) dress and says nothing. The entire time. And looks uncomfortable and passes out the samples for him. So it's a very like subservient kind of vibe Mm -hmm. to like start off a pitch, which just rubs me the wrong way. And welcome to Another Bite, the show where we rewatch some of the most innovative and, well, intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined today with Ariel. Hi. And John. How's it going? Today, our episode is a smorgasbord, one product that aims to attract and, well, maybe repel every woman ever, another that aims to clean up the competition, and one that's got offers that are Polaroid opposite. But first, a quick word from our one, our only, our most loyal sponsor. Over 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support so you can grow beyond your wildest dreams, boosting leads and ramping up sales along the way. They even have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. Plus, with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save up to 90% off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot and take your growth to new heights, visit hubspot.com startups. First in the tank, we have Scrub Daddy, which is aiming to make everyday cleaning easier. So Aaron Krauss comes to us, the daddy of Scrub Daddy, and he's looking for a $100,000 investment for a 10% stake in his company, which shakes out to a million-dollar valuation. And we have Scrub Daddy as a product. So this is a high-tech scrubbing tool, a sponge, if you will, that is the greatest kitchen scrubbing tool you'll ever use. So what's innovative about this product is really Scrub Daddy changes texture based on the temperature of water you're using, which has all of these benefits of like if you need a very durable sponge that can hold a 10-pound weight, amazing, put it in cold water. Or if you need a more flexible sponge, great, put it in hot water. But the pitch really gave good old infomercial vibes of old where he was demonstrating for the sharks on a glass stovetop, really tackling various dried substances and scrubbing through them and then wringing out the sponge and voila, it's clean. Thinking about this pitch and this reenactment of kitchen cleaning, what did we think about Scrub Daddy? I love the ShamWow vibe. <laughs> like I thoroughly enjoyed both the product and the demonstrator. Mm-hmm. Product itself is really cute. I love the little smile, but I love even more that there's that functionality Mm -hmm. to it. I hate when I'm cleaning out spatulas or spoons afterwards and there's all that gunk left on it. And the fact that it's also cute, it's not just your regular sponge. It has some kind of functionality to it is a game changer for anyone who hates doing dishes like me. I was so excited that we were going to do Scrub Daddy on this show because I've owned a Scrub Daddy. (gasps) You've tried the products. And I hated the Scrub Daddy so much. I was like, this thing is garbage. What? No Let me just finish. Let me finish my story. Well, (laughs) holy crap. I watched his infomercial pitch. I had no idea how to use the Scrub Daddy. I didn't know that it was temperature controlled. I didn't know that you could stick a spoon in the mouth. And I didn't know that the eye holes were for your fingers. And I didn't know it didn't scratch. My mind is absolutely blown. I think I actually have one under the sink left over. Like I'm breaking that thing out. 
and trying it out again. <laughs> so the only challenge here is maybe I'm in the extreme minority, which is very possible. I certainly felt like a fool after watching the pitch, but it feels like it's a little bit of an educational product. Mm. And we heard that a little bit. Like he's like, hey, look, if you put this on the shelves, no one's going to buy this because his price point is very premium for a sponge. 280. Yeah, 280 for a sponge, which is way too much to charge just for a normal sponge. And so he notes like I either need an end cap or I need to be on QVC Mm -hmm. or whatever, because he's got to show the product off in order for people to pay the premium there. But there are lots of ways to show your product off. And this is a perfect example of knowing what shark you need. Mm. Like this is Lori all day. Mm -hmm. Like Lori and him just need to partner up and get this on QVC as much as possible and then package that QVC style video for television advertising and other ways that just show people the product. And I think they will sell a ton of premium priced sponges. John, I don't think you're alone. I still think this is an issue, even though this is a pitch from so long ago, mm-hmm. that they're still challenged with as a brand today is like, we don't really understand that functionality. So I'd be really curious to see now in the world of social media and where TikTok is taking off and so yeah. many video oriented mediums now than what was available when it first came out. I'd be really curious to see even some like unhinged scrub daddy, scrub mommy, like TikToks or something of like all the different like types could be a really great way to still get that education out there. But I still feel like it's a mess that they're still continuing to see. I agree. I think that this pitch was in 2012, right? And even like what, 11 years later, I still thought the smile was just to differentiate. Like I thought the whole thing was it smiles at you. Yeah. <laughs> and I was blown away that it's really just for scrubbing spoons and you things. You can stick a spoon in there. Yeah, who knew? Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Anyway, that's the problem. Who knew? And that will continue to be a real challenge for them. You know, another challenge I saw was what he wanted to spend the money on. So he doesn't need capital, really. Mm-hmm. He's done okay. But he wants to go vertically integrate his business and build his own production facility, which I just couldn't disagree with more. Interesting. Okay. Even though he's very experienced in the production world, he should leverage that experience to ensure that whatever production setup he is using it from a third party perspective is as incredible as possible. But he should put every dollar of capital that he has into sales and marketing, not into building a production facility, because his advantage is not going to be from his ability to produce the product. His advantage is going to come from his ability to convince people that this is a superior product that's worth paying more for. And I thought it was actually interesting. This was the first time I found a founder that really understood manufacturing so deeply, like 18 years of experience at running a manufacturing plant is not nothing, right? So I thought it was like actually an interesting indicator of being really deeply invested in a product and really understanding the supply and demand of where this product was going. So very interesting that you were like, oh, no, that's a total miss. Let's just say you have $100 to invest. Mm -hmm. If he is going to build out a production facility, he's going to have to invest a lot of capital into the build out of that facility. And then he will pay that off over time. He'll amortize that cost over time. And it's just not critical to his business to spend on that. He should be getting a whole bunch of partners who can produce really high quality scrub daddies for him, basically, then can keep up with his demand needs. And he should put all of his money and invest it in sales and marketing. (laughs) <laughs> to teach us all that, yes, the smile is for the spoon. Yes. <laughs> the smile is for the spoon. Yeah, a little storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems like the Sharks also kind of had a bit of a lukewarm response to Scrub Daddy. You know, the product had already been on QVC. And as soon as the founder said that, 
I think we were all kind of in the same boat of thinking, okay, like he's really after Lori here, right? Right. If a lot of his sales came from QVC and you're sitting basically in front of the head of QVC herself, it's clearly a match made in heaven. But Kevin jumped in as he's wont to do with an offer for a royalty play, $100,000 for a royalty of 50 cents. And it initiated a bit of a feeding frenzy. It was Kevin, Damon, and Lori that were ultimately the most interested. And I think once Lori started to kind of perk up and was like, I can tell if a product is a hero or a zero, and this is a hero, Damon actually actually tried to like go into business with her. And she was like, I don't even need you, Damon. I know I how to make you. this amazing. Yeah. I think she was slighted by Mark's comment earlier, though, mm. when Mark was like, oh, QVC, that's no big deal. <laughs> I think that kind of set Lori in a little bit of a mood. So I don't blame her for getting a little snappy with Damon. <laughs> I would be a little peeved, too. But ultimately, I think it came down to the Sharks really understanding the retail vision It seemed like a lot of the retail vision was like that end cap space. And like, that's a really expensive bet to base the success of your product on. And it's difficult. Yeah. So it's just a little bit of an order of operations here, actually. I would not stress that much about retail right away. I would stress much more on the QVC, on having the website set up and doing video, just that explain it and show it. And as brand awareness builds and as it grows, then get into retail and I think if he went that path, I think he'd probably be just fine on the normal shelf. I also think, too, the one piece with like end cap and demos and custom and pieces that you're putting in, that is its own beast in logistics and cost to produce and ship. And then you also need to have the right relationships with your buyers in the store to say, OK, yeah, I do want to give up my prime real estate for this end cap for you know longer than a two week period. Like there's so many implications that go into that. As opposed to your point, John, of like, hey, wait to build that awareness first and then focus on like getting into retail as opposed to thinking about the big, shiny like placement. Yeah. But ultimately, it seemed that enough of our sharks were on board. Lori ultimately offered $200,000 for 20% stake in the company. And ultimately, that was the deal that Lori and the founder Aaron landed on and kind of sealed the success of Scrub Daddy. We've kind of spoiled it. Like, you know, John's bought a Scrub Daddy before. The product still exists. But I was curious if either of you had a chance to look at the Scrub Daddy social media. I have not had a chance to. So I just pulled up their Instagram. And one of the things that I think we've talked about is like, you know, it could be really awesome if they show kind of how Scrub Daddy is being used, kind of educate the population. And uh, I will say like the Scrub Daddy Instagram, at least, It's a delightful mix of like unhinged education and meme worthy. So it's like in terms of their Instagram, I think they're absolutely crushing it. It's awesome. Nailed it. I bet in the start it was like that. And now they're actually way more focused on retention. Mm -hmm. They're trying to convince people that Scrub Daddy is a brand worth keeping in their lives and continuing to pay a premium for. And so I think that's where you lean into the unhinged, which is people just like you just want people to love the Scrub Daddy brand. It seems that like one of their catchphrases is like clean anything with a smile and like, man, that's catchy. I wish I saw that in the pitch. That's what <laughs> happens with branding over time. And yeah. you have a helpful shark to guide you along the way. Ariel, like you started talking about the sham wow. The f- yeah. What was the sham wow? Wait, you don't know what the sham wow I don't even know what the sham wow was. What's the scrub daddy? I don't even know what the scrub daddy is. This is the thing. The sham wow is a perfect comparison to the scrub daddy. Neither the sham wow nor the scrub daddy would have been nearly as big 
if the brand hadn't been like super memorable, super catchy, kind of weird, kind of quirky. I feel like if you can find a way to just make something that you use every day slightly nuanced, more people I feel like are just susceptible to buying it. Next up in the tank, oh boy, do we have a product. So we have Cougar Energy and just a lot of thoughts. Let's consolidate them down. So Ryan Custer comes to the Sharks with a product that is inspired by his girlfriend, which you would think would be romantic, right? She's 11 years his senior, really supportive partner, and he's invested everything into this product to give women what they want. Well, spoiler alert, Mel Gibson, it's probably not this. Ryan comes asking for a $150,000 stake for a 30% cut in his business, which shakes out to a 500K valuation. So Cougar Energy, it's a gender-specific functional drink that's loaded with 13 super fruits, whatever that means. And it's aiming to give those cougars in your lives stronger nails and hair. So basically biotin, some anti-aging benefits thrown in, and it's a female-friendly energy blend, whatever that means, that makes a mean cougar teeny. And really with all its age-defying products is meant to both keep your cougar looking young, your cougar being a woman, and energized throughout her day of just being aged, I guess. I said this before and I'll say it again. I hate everything about this. <laughs> I can't watch. Like I am physically getting stressed out just thinking about this product. There's so much to just unpack with the initial pitch. Let's go. Ryan starts his pitch. He has a young woman sitting there looking a little bit uncomfortable demoing his product and starts off his pitch pointing to this woman as an example. Who's on a throne, mind you. It's a velvet throne she's sitting on. Who is in a scantily clad <laughs> dress and says nothing. The entire right. time. And looks uncomfortable and passes out the samples for him. So it's a very like subservient kind of vibe mm -hmm. to like start off a pitch, which just rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> goes into the health benefits, anti-aging benefits, and then goes on to leave the final knife in the gut for me was middle-aged women are cougars between the ages of 30 to 55. So apparently I am in this target audience. You cougar you. <laughs> yes. John, your initial thoughts before I get too emotional with this. I'll start by saying that me... As a younger man providing commentary on this product for middle-aged women feels like a reach, but not quite as much of a reach as if I were a younger man building this product for middle-aged women and trying to get rich on it. From what I saw, he basically has an out-of-touch brand with no middle-aged women from his target audience involved in the production and development of it. And he has a product that tries to do way too much that tastes like chalk. Mm -hmm. Seems like he's not on the best path for this thing to take off here. Not setting himself up for success, if you will. And I just feel like there's nothing wrong with having a target audience. You know, we talk about segmentation a lot in marketing, even, you know, thinking about personas, who are we trying to reach? Like, there is absolutely nothing wrong with saying your product is geared towards, you know, women of a certain age or certain interests. Mm -hmm. But the issue I think here is like when you don't do the research and you cultivate a product that you think people want you've already lost the game. And I think that's kind of what lost it for me was these claims of women want this, women want this, but where's the data backing that up? If he came in and said, hey, 40% of women feel that the energy drink market is, you know, not geared towards them or they're looking to get more like vitamins in their daily, like anything like that, I think would have given him more credibility than just saying this is what middle-aged women want because this is what I think they want. 
Does any woman actually want to self-identify as a cougar? No. No, it's not a nice term. It's yeah. not It's not the nicest term. I mean, no. listen, I think there were a lot of jokes about it mm-hmm. back in the day, and I think he basically got a domain name and a patent on a term that was kind of a joke and <laughs> thinks he can build a whole media empire out of it, and I, I just don't see it. Ariel, you bring up the point about segmentation, mm-hmm. and this was brought up on the show. Mr. Wonderful was like, well, you know, you've just already reduced your total addressable market so much. It's only for women. And it's only for middle-aged women. So like, why would I fund a product that is so narrow in scope? I think it was absolutely fine if you're entering a competitive market to be super specific in mm-hmm. um, who you solve for. I think given how crowded the drink market is, the energy drink market in particular, I think the only way in is actually to have something that's very, very narrow in scope. And mm-hmm. his point of view on how he would counter the fact that it is a narrow market is he said, well, I'm not just going to sell energy drinks. I'm actually going to sell a lot of things mm-hmm. into this market. And so I thought he actually had a very reasonable approach to that, even if I you know, disagreed with how he's trying to approach this particular segment of his market. So it's like he skirted around some really good points. He was like, it's like a very male dominated industry, this energy drink thing. And like you see brands like Monster or Bang and like very like loud branded energy drinks that I think are just like there is a specific persona in mind with those types. So I feel like in terms of like branding differentiation, like that made total sense to me. It was the execution backed with no data that I think was just like where this totally fell flat. Yeah, that's such a good point. Strategy wise, there's nothing wrong with going more niche. Mm -hmm. No one can ever have a total addressable market of 100%. If you are, you're trying to make a product for everyone and that's not going to sustain long term. Um, But I think that was the biggest thing because like I enjoy energy drinks. I enjoy a really good sugar-free Red Bull anytime I can. And it's been a bad habit of mine since like college, but I've never once felt like, oh, this is too like aggressive and manly for me to drink. Like, like I don't my know, little female hands. Like, yes. yeah. I get the sugar free. Maybe that's viewed as more feminine. I don't know. But like, I just don't like the sugar crash afterwards. So totally I don't know. But definitely, uh, I think it would have been interesting if he focused more on the suite of offerings, right? So like if he did have a merchandise, maybe it is like a whole line. If it's like a lifestyle or like a type of fashion brand or like something that he was trying to like tie into cohesive as opposed to just this is a drink to make cougars look better, not age. And just for all these wrong reasons, they need to drink this. If he's trying to aim for cougars, right, then it's like clearly a woman that self-identifies as a cougar. But then it's like also trying to tackle insecurities that I feel like didn't really make sense with that kind of branding where it's like, oh, but it's age defying. So it's like you must identify with an older age, but then also be deeply ashamed of it. What kind of tone are we trying to strike with this product? But for all that, we're like kicking this product down. He had made some sales, right? So as of Shark Tank, he was looking at $60,000 in sales. It was over three years, but he was keeping his distribution small. He was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, really targeting like 7-Elevens. There was a Curves in Pennsylvania that picked him up, a Smoothie King out of nowhere. So people were buying them. Yeah, yeah. 60000 in three years just feels so far behind That's for that fair. much. Yeah. I mean, certainly for a half million dollar valuation, it's almost impossible to justify. He's got a couple of paths here. He can go out and he can spend a lot of money on establishing the brand and can then try and ride the tailwind of that to get distribution into stores because there'll be consumer demand for it. Or he can go and get a distributor somehow that's going to get him placed into all of these stores where people buy this stuff. Both are going to be very expensive. Distributors don't do this stuff for free. 
And something that Kevin also said was like, you know, big distributors are paid to crush little cockroaches like you. So it seemed like even just breaking into that kind of like big distributor play was going to be a hurdle regardless. He would need to create a product for women that they're willing to share with all their friends. And I'm not sure that this particular angle, which is about promiscuous older women, is the angle that's going to get women to share for you. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Yep. That seems to sum up also really nicely kind of our uh, response from the sharks, right? Uh, No offers on this pitch. Poor Ryan, though. He was sweating so much. (gasps) Yeah, especially by the end. As much as I do not like his personality and everything else about him, (laughs) I did sympathize for him in that moment because he was just buckets of sweat at that point. He had a line at the end where he said, well... I hope I've impressed you. And Mr. Wonderful goes, apparently not. Yeah, like like, a death blow, am I right? (laughs) So thinking about Cougar Energy, the apparel line, the throne, do we still think that this is a company? Absolutely not. But I could see this entrepreneur going off and trying to spin off something else that's in a similar realm that's distasteful and (laughs) off-putting. That reaction, 10 out of 10. Amazing. Wow. Maybe Ryan has grown from this. You know, he's older now. Maybe he took a bunch of lessons away about how to find the right product market fit and is out building something great. Pour one out for Ryan. Spoiler, nope. The company closed its doors for good in 2014. It does look like there's not much of a market out there for middle-aged women who want to call themselves cougars. Who could have ever guessed? All right. Well, Last in the tank, we've got Groovebook, which is an affordable solution to a digital problem of having all of those photos really stack up on our smartphones because you take all these photos and what do you do with them? Nothing. So Brian and Julie come to us asking for $150,000 for a 20% stake in their company. That shakes out to about a $750,000 valuation. And dearest listener, I want you to keep that number in mind because it's actually going to become really important later down the road. So they've got this product, it's Groovebook, and essentially what it is is a subscription service that allows you on a monthly basis to have a hundred of your photos sent to you. And it's these four by six photos that can be ripped out of this photo book. The proposition and like really the value of this product is to save time and money. You know, you don't have to go to the store and print out all the photos and you don't have to waste essentially really expensive printer ink because they send it right to your door. And it's a really affordable product at $2.99, which includes shipping and handling. But Ariel, John, what are we thinking initially about Groovebook, the product? I mean, $2.99 for the cost of photos is such a strong value prop for me. I find myself in the audience of constantly getting like a canvas made or wanting to print out things that I like have on my phone or I just store all these photos to an album that I'm like, oh, I'll get to like printing it later. So that's a really low cost of entry point. And I feel like it provides a lot of value. I'll start by just saying I love it when we get to go back in time on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And this is an episode where we're going back in time 10 years (laughs) to a brief and in retrospect, fairly hilarious period where everybody suddenly had a digital camera in their pocket but was still living in a world where they used to print all their photos out. Mm-hmm. Kind of feels like the kind of thing our kids might ask us about someday. Like, what was it like when you used to print out all your photos? Did you and... really print your photos, Dad? So I feel like we're like <laughs> going back to this like weird time where like everybody in the world who had a smartphone was actually thinking about whether they want to print all their photos out, which mm-hmm. now in retrospect is 
just so laughable. I know some moms that would really love that, that like take all the photos of their kids and would love to like send it to grandma and grandpa. Like, I think there's a market for it to still print out photos. Ariel, the Groove book would be like a subscription to the New Yorker. It would just pile up on your bedside table. I think the real problem, though, is the threat of substitute products will actually become a real problem for them because in just a few years, nobody will actually be printing photo books and they'll just be um, enjoying their bigger phones and their bigger screens and Instagram and TikTok and other places that they want to share. I see it more as like a tool for decoration as opposed to like sharing more widely like we used to back in the old days with our disposable cameras. That just goes to show like its wide usage and how it could be adopted by other companies. So it's more of a function and less of like its own standalone brand in some ways. What percent of baby books do you think get completed? (laughs) I don't think they ever get finished. I know that I had a baby book for my dog and we made it past the first page. So based on that very small knowledge, yeah, probably very small percentage these days. I think there is an aspiration to complete a lot of baby books and people might find this an easy way to think, wow, I could do that. I'm not sure that mothers end up having as much time to put together their scrapbooks as they might aspire to. It's also got some issues going on, right? The cost to make the book is $2.30. For all its advantages, like a profit margin per book of 70 cents, as of the episode, even in 2014, they had 18,000 paid subscribers and they weren't even breaking even. That's why I felt like this was definitely more of an acquisition play here. It's like, hey, we have a unique product. And I think the sharks, you know, Mark and Kevin really caught on to that. But I think the software itself and being able to offer that as an add-on when you're going through like a Shutterfly or Google photos to like print out your photos, like seeing that value is so huge. And they don't really strike me as two entrepreneurs that are really like, In the business of inventing a lot of things, they strike me more as like, hey, this is a really great concept we invented, an idea, like more open to selling it off the bat. They said the reason they have set it so low and kept their margins so low is that they are trying to get as many people in America to be printing groove books as possible. The sharks laughed at it on the show. But when you have a tech company go into a pitch with a venture capitalist and say, we are basically like over-investing in user acquisition and sub-optimizing profit, everybody thinks it's the greatest idea in the world. So, you know, I think there's kind of a bit of a double standard here. You know, their strategy is to get as many users as possible, which Ariel, to your point, if what they want as an outcome is to get acquired is one of the smartest things they can do. And I would argue that even if their goal is not to get acquired, it's a really smart thing to Mm -hmm. do. I think you always can talk about raising prices later. It's much harder to lower prices than raise prices. 18,000 subscribers, though, and they're still in the red. But I thought it was helpful that they at least looked at the numbers and are like, okay, to break even, we need to be at 30,000. I'm glad that they at least owned up to it of like, hey, like we know this is kind of a miss. We know we want to give the best value possible for our audience. So I'm glad that they really like stuck to that. Is this really scalable for building a brand equity if they decided to kind of stay on their own and like build up the company from a value perspective? I just don't think they were strong enough on like the unique marketing front besides that price point being the main differentiator for them. So I don't know if they would have like survived if they would have continued to just focus on growth. Yeah, it's unclear. I mean, I think the thing is, if they have set their price points so low and as we established earlier, there was really kind of 
this period where everybody was thinking about, do I want to print all my photos out? I think having the right price point is probably the key to mass market adoption. Mm-hmm. I think long term, they would have a problem having margins that are so low. But I think that in terms of just getting as many users as possible onto GrooveBook, it's not a bad strategy. I think the shark saw value in very different ways when it came to GrooveBook. And that's why I thought the offers on the table were so interesting. So essentially, we've got two types of offers, right? Mark saw this company as really a service proposition, right? And that kind of was reflected in his offer. He offered $150,000 for the rights to license GrooveBook as a service to other companies. Listen, so Mark is betting he can go to a bunch of really big services where people are already uploading their photos. For instance, Google Photos or Shutterfly or a company like that where people are already putting their photos. He could say, hey, we want to offer you basically a cut of everybody who prints their photos through GrooveBook. And so what Mark is basically betting and ultimately Mr. Wonderful when he goes in on the deal is that they have enough clout that they can go into a bunch of these big companies where users are already uploading their photos and get those companies to make a deal with them and that they can basically get a great rev share on that as Mark and Mr. Wonderful. And so that ultimately is a strategy choice for the entrepreneurs. Do they want to go out and acquire users and bet that they can get those users to do an additional behavior every month, which is upload 100 photos to an app and say, I want to print these ones? Or do they think that it would be easier to rely on places they're already uploading photos to and just getting a slice of that? I think they will have a much better business if they go direct to consumer and don't go the B2B route personally. First, there was Kevin's solo offer, which was just to buy out the company. And that's where the valuation came into play. Kevin was like, look, you came into this pitch offering a stake that ultimately equaled out to $750,000. He's like, I'll buy out your company. What do you say about that? But then it was interesting because the founders backpedaled on their initial valuation and they were like, no, we won't sell for the valuation we offered at the beginning of our pitch. We'll sell it to you for $6 million dollars, which is over six times their initial valuation. So what did we think about that kind of bold move? I don't blame them for trying. (laughs) I mean, I think that's an example of our entrepreneurs pivoting and picking up on that interest that the sharks have. And they know like, okay, we have something here. The fact that the sharks are so divided in their approach, I think it was more of an attempt to get a little more, you know, skin in the game, I think is what the entrepreneur kept referring to. And, you know, I don't blame them for trying, but definitely not at that six million valuation. (laughs) That was definitely to uh, bullish. (laughs) Yeah, it's very counterintuitive. There are multiple ways to value companies. Software companies and tech companies are often valued on a revenue multiple, how much revenue they have. And basically you put some multiple against it. Say, okay, they've got 18,000 subscribers paying $3 a month. Let's just assume they don't churn any customers, which is a bad assumption. But then you get to a world where basically they have like $650,000 in annual revenue. And so a 750,000 valuation on $650,000 in annual revenue, it's like a 1.2x revenue multiple. You would think, wow, that is way too low. You probably should value yourself at three to five X revenue or something like that. And so maybe you're worth like 2.5 or 3 million. That model basically all depends on how fast you can grow users. Mm -hmm. If they were at like 100,000 users or something like that, their revenue picture would look really, really different. Like you could see them in a five to $10 million valuation at 100,000 users Mm. uh, pretty easily. 
the problem is they don't really have a software business. Mm -hmm. Software businesses don't have any marginal cost of delivering a product because once they build it, it doesn't cost anything more to let more customers use it. <laughs> this business has a fixed cost associated with every new customer that it acquires, which is they have to actually like print the book and they have to mail the product. And so it's rare that a company that isn't a software company really gets valued on a revenue multiple. Instead, it typically gets valued on like a free cash flow multiple or an EBITDA multiple or something like that. And what's really interesting is if you look at their 25% margins, their $750,000 valuation is basically like 5X their EBITDA right now. And so you're like, actually, the $750,000 is fair valuation for the company as it's at today. And if they spike their user growth, which I could definitely see happening based on a Shark Tank appearance at this point in time, I think they could be easily valued at 5 to $10 million in a very short period of time. So ultimately, it was a bit of a bidding war between the two different types of offers. Like, are we going to go in based on licensing or go in based on equity? And ultimately, Mark and Kevin joined forces, 150K for 80% of the rights to license Groovebook to other companies. That's when we saw the deal ultimately get made and they went for the licensing offer. Smart. Honestly, the downside to the entrepreneurs, though, in this case is actually pretty low because they're not giving any equity in the company away. Mm -hmm. They're basically just taking money and saying, you can go and try and sell this into some big companies. So do you two think that Groovebook is still a company? Yes, but under a different company's product or name. I think Groovebook as itself is just gone. The name. I know they got acquired. So I don't know what happened to them after that. I would guess that it's probably been shut down or it's evolved dramatically into just some other like on-demand photo book offering. Well, to put your questions to rest, unfortunately, Groovebook is no longer keeping it groovy. When the episode originally aired, their sales did triple overnight. So they did get that kind of spike in interest that you had mentioned was possible. But as you also mentioned, John, in 2014, they were acquired by Shutterfly, but for $14.5 million. So like this acquisition oh, wow. was not nothing. They definitely uh, made some cash there. They must have really grown users. Acquired. They grew it to 500,000 paid subscribers after Shutterfly. Oh, wow. As of April 2022, Groovebook is no longer operational. I couldn't find out why. It's like for undisclosed reasons, it's no longer in operation to any extent. So pour one out for Groovebook, but brilliant acquisition. So that was pretty successful, all things considered. Wow. Before we close out, based on our three products, Groovebook, <laughs> Cougar Energy, and Scrub Daddy, who do you think won the episode? Who do you think wins the war of the products? Mm. Scrub Daddy is the hands-down winner of this episode. It made $300 million in annual sales. They're selling so many sponges. So Honestly, I would say Groovebook just because, I mean, John, to your point, the more and more I think about it, we have to remember these episodes are in a moment of time. And like, I do feel like, yeah, in 2023, folks aren't printing out their photos as much. So I think for them to get acquired and sell their business ultimately was like the best thing that could have like happened for them. Mm -hmm. I think the winner was, oddly enough, Cougar Energy. But let me explain no. why. Because we often disagree on this show, right? And to bring us together in a moment of collective hate, we cannot dismiss that so quickly. And to have us all just collectively agree, like, this is not it. What a winner. What a 10 out of 10 winner. We love a good uh, <laughs> product that brings us all together. Even if it is a mutual hate. Amazing. Amazing. 
Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Production support comes from Melanie Romero. Have you told a friend about the show yet? A family member, maybe? I told Jerry, my neighbor. You don't know Jerry, but you sort of know Jerry. The guy who sits on his front porch all day, little doggo at his feet, barks at everyone. Not Jerry's fault. Well, maybe sort of Jerry's fault. Training really is about training the owner, not the dog. Anyway, tell people about the show. Okay, that does it for me. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.